So good evening. Would y'all say it's a good evening? Yeah. Where you at, Ohad? All I got to do is find sweatpants, right? Lila Tov, is it a good evening? Yeah, it's even later. So we've had a few amazing services lately, huh? Yeah. Yeah, and tonight is no exception. And the difficult things that you're going to hear, they're necessary so that we can wrestle with truth and come out of We're baptized in an environment where people don't hear difficult things, where they avoid them at all costs. And that's why our society is overrun with underachieving, uh, ridiculous forms of Christianity. We need to be challenged, and we need to be challenged in the most serious of ways. So that's our aim tonight. At no point in this should you begin to think, oh man, they're angry with us. We're not angry, not even a little bit. We are so thrilled with the body of Christ that's here. We don't know what to do. This is the crowning achievement of Jesus Christ in our lives, for sure. And I am a little upset with the state of affairs in the world. And that falls squarely on the shoulders of the church. Uh, No matter how well your life is going, the world around us is going to hell in a handbasket, and that falls on us. So we want to review something. We want to review a key to treasure, a absolute wisdom. How many of you remember this chiastic structure from last Monday and from Sunday? Knowing what you know now about chiastic structures, you understand that there's a linear format here. Everything in the kingdom begins with humbling yourself. You can't begin to find Christ if you're wise in your own eyes. You can't stay in Christ if you're wise in your own eyes. Whatever good things he's done in your life up to this point is completely contingent upon you remaining at least as humble as you were when you came to him. And actually more is required of you as you go. Amen. The more you in humility understand your state, the more you work to humble yourselves, the more you're driven to prayer because he's a perfect God. His name is drawing you. His character is drawing you. His attributes are drawing you. And the more you understand how good he is and how wretched your state is, the more you'll want to communicate with him and figure out how to fix your state. That's exactly what the Beatitudes are about. When we're praying, it's not a Christmas list. It's not all the things you ever desired. It's not vote for Pedro and all your dreams will come true. We are praying about His face. What direction should we be looking, Lord? What what should we be reflecting, Lord? You are the only source of goodness, Lord. And if I don't get that from You, I'm incapable of deriving it on my own. When you understand His goodness and your wretchedness, you come to the place in the chiastic structure where there's only one conclusion. You have to turn from your wicked ways. Amen. The biggest tragedy that has happened that I can think of in my lifetime is a lack of preaching about turning from your wicked ways after coming to Christ. It's being presented as only something that happens before you come to Christ. And now you're just righteous. No, you stand in credited righteous, but you must become what God is crediting you with. Amen. 
When you turn from your wicked ways, something happens. You begin to hear from heaven. Because of our lack of turning, there is a lack of hearing from God. There is a lack of understanding his purpose. That's how the whole church world can shut down because of a cold. Mm. When you start to hear from him, he will start to forgive the things that are in your life as he transforms you. Because they won't be you anymore. It'll be something working in you that is not you. He will forgive and he will heal the land. Amen. The other part of this chiastic structure that ought to be familiar to you after Sunday is humbling yourself is the only way you'll ever see real healing. Period. Those are in parallel for a reason. Praying, seeking Him, is the only way that you'll ever actually be forgiven. That's not reading somebody else's prayer. It is the actual cry that has to come out of your spirit that it responds to with forgiveness. Seeking His face is the only way you'll ever actually know His direction. And the unparalleled, the emphasized, the emboldened, the truth without parallel is that the key to everything is that you must turn from your wicked ways. Amen. Amen? Amen. Well, saints, you should well remember that this came out of Second Chronicles 7. I'm going to read verse 14 and 15 for you as we go back through this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. The first thing we want to visit with you is if my people who are called by my name, saints, in the Bible, is a name just a name? No. It represents his body of work, his character, his reputation. He says, if my people, the ones that I possess, the one that I call my own, that bear my body of work, my character. You know, first and foremost, this has to be referring to Israel. We've been studying together for a long time. And yet, in a mysterious way, we've been grafted in and included in that, where you actually bear the name of Christ. So everything that is going to come from this point in the passage is speaking to those that are saved. We're not talking about the lost. We're not talking about sinners turning from their wicked ways. We're speaking about His people. Titus 2.14 is something I'm going to read to you, and then Justin will keep carrying us on through the passage. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You notice in the passage he redeemed us, and then he goes on to continue to purify us. Has anybody been experiencing that purifying? Listen, that's something we need to long for, something we need to be welcoming and asking God to bring into our life because it is how we will be presented to him, an unholy people being presented as a holy people to a holy God. Eager to do what is good. These things are characteristics that define those that are his people. You want to know that his name is on you? You need to see that a purifying work is going on in your life and that you are eager to do what he calls good. Amen? Amen. Amen. The next step in Second Chronicles 7.14 is shall humble themselves. Did you guys learn a great deal about humbling yourselves last week? Yes. yes. That is because this is the first step in the chiastic structure. The truth is, we will not get anywhere with God 
without taking this verse extremely seriously. This is the very beginning. Humbling yourself is the start of the process and leads to being healed. Without humbling yourself, you cannot enter into that process. But pride causes a lack of the fear of God. It causes you not to be able to see your own state rightly. Pride causes self-deception. It causes flattery of self and unable to detect your sin. And it is the downfall of humankind. The very first sin that led humans into sin was pride. Thinking that they could take something that God said is not theirs at all. The scripture admonishes us on this subject. I'm going to read to you Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. How are you going to live a life worthy of the calling? In verse 2 it says, be completely humble. Be completely humble. Not a one-time humbling of yourself. Not just a one-time event, but live completely humble. Learn to live in the process where you can humble yourself and see your state rightly. Be humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I want to read you another passage. Galatians 5, 22 through 26. But the fruit of the Spirit, say Spirit. Spirit. spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is a test to see if you are walking in the Spirit. Do you possess these things? Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. When you become conceited, you are acting in pride and not living by the Spirit. This is the number one step in success in your walk. If you can't learn to do this rightly, you will not get very far with the Lord. Which takes us to the next phrase, and pray. Luke 11.1 1 records the only instance I could think of in all of the scripture where the disciples initiated in desire and verbally a request. Jesus, teach us to pray. These are people that grew up praying three times a day minimum, in the morning, at lunch, and in the evening. But they knew that they were not connected to the Lord like Jesus was connected to the Lord. And they were asking, teach us to pray like you pray. Amen. Which begs an uh, extraordinary question. Are you ready for your first difficult question tonight? Do you spend even 25% of the time in prayer that you spend listening to teachings in a week? Yeah, see, there's an astounding silence. What if we lowered it to 10% of the time? Because no Christian will ever outgrow his own prayer life. It'll never happen. The number one cause that you see that is the manifestation of a people that are not humbled and don't understand their state is they're not in prayer. They, they are not seeking the face of God because they don't know their own need. Instead, with verbiage, they claim everything even though it's not shown up in their life. Our hope, our desire for you is that a fear of God mixed with a love of God, because they are the same thing, will lead you to communicate with Him about His will and His desires on earth. Wednesday night, 
We are going to be all over that topic as it was lined out in the Bible. What draws you to him? How you interact with him? What the results of interacting with him are? And the most seasoned Christians I know have been blessed beyond belief with a revolution in their thought and their thinking. We need to learn to pray in the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. On that note, as we transition to seeking his face, when we speak about praying, we're not just talking about quantity. We're also talking about quality. We are not praying to run our mouth and rack up a large number of syllables. We are praying to seek his face. The ironic blessing of number six has everything to do with God's face shining upon yours. The idea is you're seeking him and heaven has a response back to you. Knowing his will, his desires, his feelings, his preferences, his purposes, and his priorities is the point of seeking his face. Understanding what it is that he is, what he desires, his holiness, that it might be made manifest in us and in our life. Colossians 3 1 through 2 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Saints, when you've been raised with Christ, when you've been born again, you still must actively set your hearts on things above. I promise you, your natural inclination is not things above, but you force it, you set it upon things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. As we seek his face this evening going through the teaching, we want something of his character and his holiness to be made aware to us through prayer that we might respond to it. The next step is turn from their wicked ways. This is the unparalleled truth of 2 Chronicles 7.14. Everything on the left side of the chiastic structure is leading you to this. When you seek the face of God, you're seeking his character. He's revealing something about who he is to you, and it causes you to do something. Everything on the left side of the chiastic structure leads you to this. Everything on the right side of the chiastic structure is built upon this, turning from their wicked ways. Now, the shocking part of the statement is that in our election season of tribal warfare, it is not our politicians who turn the nation. Who is this verse written to? God's people. God's people. It's not the Congress, the Pentagon, or any of the governmental structures. Those things are a reflection of the people. It is the people who repent and begin to turn the nation. It is the people who turn away from their wicked ways, and God responds by what he will do for the nation. Come on. The truth is is that those governmental structures are there because the people are not turning away from their wicked ways. Instead, they're turning to the governmental structures. It is the populist who need to turn from their wicked ways. This means it starts with me. Everybody say, it starts with me. Me. And it starts with you. You have the power to turn God's favor on a nation. When we cultivate a fear of God and get better acquainted with his desires, then we will stop tolerating wickedness all around us. Jeremiah weeped before the Lord and he said, I repent for my sins, but I also repent for the sins of the people around us. And they turn God's heart. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. God shows you when you seek his face. Because he loves you, he shows you what you need to get right. When you're humbling yourself, when you're praying, when you're seeking his face. So that you can repent. 
Now be earnest in it. If you'll turn from your wicked ways, God says, then I will hear. Repentance, turning away from your sin and towards God. Say away. Away. From sin. From sin. And towards. Towards. God. That causes him to turn towards you. Amen. I mean, there's no mystery in that. The difficulty is in recognizing your wicked ways and doing it. But if you turn towards him, he will turn towards you. And all of the teaching and the preaching that you hear, this is the most important and practical survival skill in the spiritual nature of the kingdom. If you want God to hear you, it has to be preceded by you turning from your wicked ways. If you say, I can't find a wicked way. I mean, as far as I know, I'm right with the Lord. You have not thought enough about how holy and righteous He is. Amen. And that's why you can't hear from God. You are covered in pride. Pastor, I just don't know how to hear from God. Oh, it's so easy. Turn from your wicked ways. And He promises that He will hear you. Amen. Everything is contingent upon that. When we repent properly, then He hears. He forgives. And He heals. How many of you would like to pray right now? Yes. Why don't you guys stand up and let's pray together? Mighty God, Lord, we come before you and we humble ourselves. Lord, we are praying to you. We want to seek your face, mighty God. Lord, we say tonight that we want to go in to the Holy of Holies. Lord, we want to go into the Holy of Holies. Lord, let us properly go through the steps that you require so that we can get there. Lord, let not slumber steal from what you're trying to give us. Lord, let us be attentive to your words tonight. Lord, we need you to speak to us. Lord, your word is like bread to us and we've come hungry, mighty God. Lord, we pray that your hunger would arise, that hunger would arise in this place, mighty God, that we would grasp what you have to say to us and we would enter into the holy place with you, mighty God. Lord, we want to hear your direction for our lives tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to have an extraordinary time tonight. We're going to cover the 8th and the ninth chapters of 2 Chronicles. Yeah. Our title tonight is Ensnared by Blessings. But I just want to read one more New Testament passage first. This is 1 John 1.8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Man, that's quite a deal, isn't it? All right. Everybody with me? Yes. Yes. You say with me? Tonight Tonight. applies applies to me. me. All right. We got it out of the way. There is no healing without humbling. There is no forgiveness without righteous prayer. There is no hearing from heaven if we do not seek heaven. And it is all aimed and dependent upon turning because this applies to us. This is how the fire of holiness refines us. 
And it is not a one-time process. In fact, we're going to do it many times tonight. We go through it over and over again so that we can be hammered like fine Damascus steel. Who wants to get hammered tonight? <laughs> Let's get into chapter 8 and 9. Brother Linton. No, no. 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 She's going to read, then we're going to transition. No, no feud. Have a feud. 8 through 9 for us. You do it. See how fast we just turned? (laughs) At the end of 20 years, during which Solomon built the temple of the Lord in his own palace, Solomon rebuilt the villages that Haram had given him and settled Israelites in them. Solomon went to Hamath, Zobah, and captured it. He also built up Tadmor in the desert and all of the store cities he had built in Hamath. He rebuilt Upper Beth Haran and Lower Beth Haran as fortified cities with walls and with gates and bars, as well as Balak and his store cities, and all of the cities for his chariots and for his horses. Whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and throughout all of the territory he ruled. All of the people left from the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites These people were not Israelites, that is, their descendants remaining in the land whom the Israelites had not destroyed. These Solomon conscripted for the slave labor force as it was to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of the Israelites for his work. They were his fighting men, commanders of his captains and commanders of his chariots and charioteers. They were also King Solomon's chief officials, 250 officials supervising the men. Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the palace where he had built for her. For he said, My wife must not live in the palace of David, king of Israel, because the places the ark of the Lord has entered are holy. On the altar of the Lord that he had built in front of the portico, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord according to the daily requirements for offerings commanded by the Moses for Sabbath new moons, and for three annual feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. In keeping with the ordinance of his father David, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their duties and the Levites to leave the praise and to assist the priests according to day's requirements. He also appointed a gatekeeper by divisions for various gates because this was David, the man of God, had ordered. They did not deviate from the king's command, so that the priest or to priest or to the Levites in any matter, including that of the treasuries. All Solomon's work was carried out from the day of the foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid until its completion. So the temple of the Lord was finished. Then Solomon went to Ezeron Geber and Elath on the coast of Edom, and Haram sent him ships commanded by his own officers. Men who knew the sea. These were Solomon's men, sailed to Ophri and brought back 450 talents of gold, which they delivered to King Solomon. When the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. Arriving with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spice, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions, 
Nothing was too hard for him to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw the wisdom of Solomon, as well as the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, the cupbearers in their robes, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, I report, a report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe what they said until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half the greatness of the wisdom was told to me. You have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on his throne as a king to rule for the Lord your God. Because of the love of your God for Israel and his desire to uphold them forever, he has made you king over them to maintain justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. There had never been such spices as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. The men of Haram and the men of Solomon brought gold from Ophri. They also brought algam wood and precious stones. The king used the algam wood to make steps for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace, to make harps and lyres for the musicians. Nothing like men had ever seen in Judah. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for and gave her more than she had brought to him. <laughs> then she left and returned with her retune to the own country, her own country. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues brought in by merchants and traders. Also, all of the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 becas of hammered gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with 300 becas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with pure gold. The throne had six steps. A footstool of gold was attached to it on it. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood in the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all of the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. The king had a fleet of trading ships manned by Haram's men. Once every three years they returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. All the kings of the earth sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold and robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon had 4,000 stalls of horses and chariots and 12,000 horses which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. He ruled over all the kings from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. The king made silver and 
as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedars as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from all other countries. As for other events of Solomon's reign from beginning to end, they are not written in the records of faith Nathan the prophet and the prophecies of Hijah the Shulamite and the visions of Iddo the seer concerning Jeroboam son of Nebat. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Man. Well, let's jump right into it. We're going to have Justice Lintonius Max read chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. At the end of 20 years, during which Solomon built the temple of the Lord in his own house, Solomon rebuilt the villages that Haram had given him now we're not going to spend a great deal of time here but there are frequent hints throughout this narrative that there are millennial overtones and archetypes in the reign of Solomon yeah you guys have been seeing those haven't you in the last weeks oh yeah we'll notice a few more tonight but to give you an idea let's hand out a few passages Amen. we can read these quickly Paul Rosales get Isaiah 49 verse 8 Cody get Isaiah 58 verse 12. <laughs> And David Hall, get Isaiah 61, 4 through 5. Isaiah 49, 8. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. Notice that Solomon, right after the temple is completed... He's beginning to rebuild villages Come on. that were owned by Gentile foreign kings. What's Isaiah 58, 12? Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. See, Isaiah speaks about a day that is coming when we're going to have ancient ruins restored, yeah. places that belonged to Israel but something had happened and they had been broken down. Did you catch the age-old foundations and then it says repair of broken walls? Yes. When we think about a wall, we're often talking about a structural support. But in ancient Israel, we're not just speaking about structural supports for a dwelling. We're talking about borders. We're talking about markers, things that make a nation what they are. A day that Israel would be reestablished in strength. What's Isaiah 61 say? Can you tell how well that fits with so much of what you've heard in the 8th and ninth chapter? Yeah. The truth is, is that these cities should probably never have been given to Hiram as payment. After all, they are the inheritance of the Lord. It's not Solomon's to give away. Solomon is just there as a representation of God. It probably was never a good idea to give away Israeli territory. Not then, not now, not ever. Land for peace has never worked out very well. Ask the Piro family descendants. Ezra makes sure to include their restoration to Israel in this chapter, though. It seems like an inconsequential detail, but it's not. It's a part of fulfilling that millennial archetype. 
We want to keep moving because there's some intensely practical things to get to tonight. Let's pick up in verse 3. Solomon then went to Hamat Zobah and captured him. He also built up to Tadmor in the desert and all the store cities he had built in Hamat. He rebuilt, he rebuilt Upper Bethoram and Lower Bethoram as fortified cities with walls and with gates and with bars, as well as Balak and all his store cities, and all the cities for his chariots and for his horses. Whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and all throughout the territory he ruled. Now, Solomon's building programs, his fortifications, and territorial acquisitions are still praised and discussed in secular universities today. So universities that have nothing to do with the word of God, they are still finding archaeological sites with the things that Solomon built. And some of you in this room have been there. The things that he built were astounding. This is the golden era of Israeli prominence in the world. But you want to know something else? Yes. Verse 3 hints at a misnomer about the millennial reign. Come on. It's not that there were no wars. Solomon's capturing places. It's not that there are no wars in the millennial reign. There's not final peace during the millennial reign. There are still battles. It's just that there were no defeats. There are no defeats in Solomon's wars. If you want to see more on that, look at Psalm 2 in your own time. Let's pick up again in verse 7 and read through 8, and we'll keep going. All the people left from the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, these people were not Israelites. That is, their descendants remaining in the land, whom the Israelites had not destroyed. These Solomon constructed for his slave labor force, as it is to this day. Man, I love how the Bible has such politically correct topics, right? <laughs> Listen, it's arguable whether or not this is a good or bad thing, not for the reasons that the news media might think. It may be a hint that there's a fulfillment from Genesis 9, a prophecy about Japheth coming into Shem's tent and Ham serving them. But if you remember correctly, these are the people groups that Joshua said need to be exterminated. He said, didn't say make a pet. He didn't say make a slave labor force out of them. He said get rid of them. But in any case, we still see the son of David subjugating the world and holding dominion over it. And apparently, they remained there until Ezra's day, and he's writing about it. These people groups are mentioned later in Ezra's accounts where we have marriages that should not exist. And he's noting that these guys were around during Solomon's time frame, and he recruited them for the work. Hittites, these guys are originally from central Anatolia, but migrated down. Amorites, early hill dwellers in Canaan. Perizzites, another Canaanite subtribe. Hivites, probably the same as Indo-Aryan Hurrians. There's a people group that migrated from the northeast, worked their way down, showed up in Egypt. We have cultures that are moving around, and it's often due to famine, plague, and warfare. Those are the things that get people to move. Jebusites. These guys are the original inhabitants of Jerusalem. You remember? David had to drive them out. We had a great war. And he took the city of David. Well, apparently some of these guys were left alive and they're still around during this time frame. You can read about it in Judges 3, 1 through 6. There have been multiple battles at Jerusalem. So let's pick back up in verse 9 and read through 10 together. But Solomon did not make slaves of the Israelites for his work. They were his fighting men, commanders of his captains, commanders of his chariots and charioteers. There were also King Solomon's chief officials, 250 officials supervising the men. Come on. Come on, man. 
the summary of Solomon's men, it ought to directly correlate to the body of Christ. Let me give you a few of those words. Fighting men, commanders, captains, officials. But there are no underperforming pusillanimous persons in this group. In the kingdom that the Messiah is building, there are fighting men. There are commanders. There are captains. There are officials. There is nobody that says, I'm just glad that I get to get saved. There are men who advance the kingdom. That is who is there. We'd like to hand out some passages to help drive that feeling home. Nick Rosales, take Romans 8.37. Pat Rosales, take Revelation 2.7. Nolan, Revelation 2.11. Chris, take Revelation 2.11. Marlon, take Revelation 2.17. Rick, take Revelation 2.26. Keith, Revelation 3.5. Cho, Revelation 3.12. Andrew Hayes, Revelation 3.21. And Timo, Revelation 21.7. Revelation 8.37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through them who love us. No, through all of these things, we are kind of, sort of like, in some strange, analogous simile. No, you are more than a conqueror. Where is that attitude gone in the body of Christ? And why do we look like an apparition or something that is strange everywhere that we go? Because we still believe that we conquer sin. We don't excuse it. We still believe that we take territory. We don't give it up. We still believe that we are Christ's catalyst for change on this planet. We are more than conquerors. You better let that get down in your soul. That is how you have the courage to turn from wicked ways. You know what you're called to, so you know what you must turn from. How about Revelation 2-7? Revelation (laughs) 2-7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To them who overcomes, he will give the right right to eat from the tree of life. Oh, come on. To him who is overcome? No. Overcome. No, to him who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. The very thing that we could not eat in the beginning, the very thing that is guarded by the cherubim, guarding the way back, God says to him who overcomes, I will give that very thing. Come on. We need to look at this like spoils of war. What you overcome into is this. You will receive eating from the tree of life. This is what you become in the millennial reign. You are doing it now. You are overcoming, but Solomon did not allow allow his people to be slaves. They were commanders of forces. They were in charge of officers. They were fighting men. You are fighting men now, and when you overcome, you will be fighting men. Amen. Got Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. What the Spirit says to the churches, plural, is that he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Man, have you been blessed learning about the resurrection of the dead? It's the hope of all the gospel. And this singular verse boldly proclaims that among every church everywhere, the only one who will experience that is he who overcomes. Listen, saints, you may not be able to tick 
pick the moment that you die, but you sure can pick the way that you meet that death, the manner in which you face it. When we overcome, you're guaranteeing that you will see a resurrection into a glorified body with Christ. Hey, what's 217 said? I will give the victor, his translation said. ESV says, I will give the conqueror. NIV says, to he who overcomes. The question is not, does your buddy want to be saved? The question is not, well, can I help him? The question is, does he want to become victorious in Christ? Does he want to overcome in Christ? Those are the people that get fed from heaven. Those are the people that get to inherit the world that is to come. Not those that occasionally feel guilty for the consequence of their sins. Are you destined to be a victor? Come on. Or are you just looking for some kind of self-help program and the avoidance of hell in the future? The kingdom of God is made up of victorious saints. If you're sitting here and you're thinking... But the thing is, is I don't always win. Turn from your wicked ways. He will hear you. He will heal you. He will heal your whole household and your whole land. But you have to set your eye on victory, not maintenance of sin, not compromise, not, well, I think I can help somebody. You are called to be victorious. They'll never be what you are not. If you do not have personal victory, you are not capable of helping anyone get into personal victory. That's a good word. That's why the weak, the mediocre, the underachieving, and the cowardly Christian produce more of what they are. Hey, who had the next passage? Revelation 2.26. Revelation 2.26. Wow. Man, that is such a good verse. Come on, say that's a good verse. Some of you are just listening to this, man. This is what we will become. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes what? Everything that stops you from doing the will of God. All that hell can throw at you. Anything in your life that stops you from doing the will of God, whether it be your own sin, whether it be influence of your peers, whether it's the stresses of life and the things that stop you from wanting the will of God. To him who overcomes those things and does his will. How long? Till the end. Till the very end. Every enemy that's put in front of you, you give it a final grave, a final death in your mind. He already has given us authority to trample on snakes and serpents. Authority to cast out spirits. Authority over the devil and the archons. And if we exert that authority in our life, he will give us authority over the nations. Come on, church. Revelation 3, 5. Hey, before we read that, you're going to find out tonight that Solomon is going to expand and have influence in nation after nation after nation. Who do you think the commanders were appointed for? For his work over the nations. You see this beginning to unfold in a way that should be tangibly real. Hey, what's our next verse? Hey, who has a call to the nations in yeah. this room? Yeah. Come on, man. Ibrahim, you got a call to the nations? Yeah. That starts with being victorious right here, brother. Come on. 
If you want to win out there, don't think that you will shine a light to the nations if you don't have the brightest light in your own home. The brightest light in your own home is the one that will shine the furthest. This is a training ground for victory in Christ. That's what this church is. And it's what it always will be. All right. Revelation 3, 5. I don't really care. Whoever wants to get it. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I want you to notice here for a minute. This is not a promise about what God is going to do for them. It says, he who overcomes will be dressed in white. If you are someone who overcomes, you will be clothed in deeds that are righteous. Then God promises what he will do for that man. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Listen, when we obey the orders of heaven here and now and carry out his will, he will not be ashamed of you in the kingdom to come. But don't you think for a moment the warring angels are going to watch you tremble and disobey God and that he will be proud to show you. No, when we stand and we overcome in this life, he's proud to show them his Son. Who has the next one? 312. All man to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes will never have to worry about being outside of the presence of God. Come on. To him who overcomes will never worry about God's presence leaving you somehow because you sin. To him who overcomes, you will be like a pillar in the temple of God, never to be removed. Amen. Isn't that the fear we have that we'll somehow be removed from our, his presence? Yeah. When we turn from our wicked ways, we will come to a place where we will never leave that place. We will have a new name written on us, the name of the city. We will be prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for that city which is coming down. Amen. And we will have his new, new name because we will be his bride and he will be our husband. We'll have a new identity in him. Amen. Amen. How glorious does Solomon's temple sound? Glorious. Tons and tons and tons of gold. And yet you are the greater temple when you're connected to Christ and the body of Christ descending from heaven on earth you won't call on his name in that day his name will be on you in that day but you have to overcome Amen. Revelation 321 are you getting it? To him who is a victor, you will sit on his throne. Amen. Because Jesus was a victor and sat on the throne of his father. Yes. You were called to the very throne of God. But the only way you ever get there is to win. This has been going on since God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. But you must have victory over it. Yes. Say, but I can't turn from your wicked way. He will hear you. He will heal you. He will give you the land. What you can't do if you just start 
to try to do. With a victorious attitude, he will empower you to accomplish. Amen. Look at how the end of Revelation occurs. Look at where the book closes. That's Revelation 21, 7. Man, this is written after the great tribulation. Come on. This is written after the great war with the dragon and the beast. He who overcomes all of these things will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Amen. They will inherit God's temple, comprised of his people on earth. That is much greater than Solomon's golden age, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. To be an eternal son of the living God is a result of you walking out victorious sonship now. Amen. Our resolve now has to be to enter the battle fully determined to win or die. Or if need be, oh, yeah. both win and die. Yes. It's holiness or die trying. That is what overcoming looks like, and that is what will lead us through the great tribulations. You guys ready to get into verse 11? Yes. yes. Let's do it. Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the place, to the palace he had built for her, where he said, My wife must not live in the palace of, the, of King David of Israel, because the, the, the places the ark of the Lord has entered are holy. My, my, what political savvy. Yeah. What an amazing arrangement for a king. You know, you'd be astounded at the number of commentators that are both secular and supposedly in the Christian world that view this as political genius that he married the daughter of Pharaoh. You know, it's supposed to guarantee peace, make sure that there's no war. We'll address that in a minute, but it's not exactly how it struck us when we heard that he didn't want her near the holy things because apparently there was a conflict between the compromise he had made and the holiness of God. If Solomon was uneasy with her being in places that were associated, hear this, with David and the ark, he didn't want her around areas that reminded him of his father. That should have served as a warning that this was a bad idea. That should have been enough. That uneasy feeling. If the little hussy's not holy enough to bring home to your mama and your daddy, stay away. One generation. Somebody say one generation. One generation generation later, we want to show you the fruit of what this produced. It's found in 2 Chronicles 12, 9 through 10. When Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasuries of the royal palace. He took everything, including the gold shields Solomon had made. Somebody say one generation. One generation. This is the kingdom that he supposedly had peace with because of his compromise, and this is the fruit in his son's life. Listen, you, you, my friends and family, you may not be able to foresee the devastation that comes through your compromise, the decisions you make today, but they will yield destruction tomorrow. Our suggestion is that when you feel a hesitancy, if you can't imagine wanting to parade it before your pastors, that you stop and that you pray so that you can repent and know the mind of God prior to seeing this. Let's draw a correlation here. We just read about 80-pound shields that he made out of pure gold in the same chapter. But in the same chapter, he made a decision about a living arrangement with a princess of Egypt. The same shields he dedicates in this chapter because his home is not fully dedicated to the Lord, he loses in one generation to her own relatives. 
How important is it that you hold the righteous standard of God in your house? Amen. See, it's everything. What good is it to dedicate something like this to the Lord in this chapter if in the same chapter you have already laid the groundwork to lose it in one generation? Wow. He didn't know mm. because he didn't ask. <laughs> Humble yourself. Yeah. Pray. Seek the face of the Lord. Turn from a wicked way. Then he will hear you. He will heal you. And he will heal your land. Man, one decision caused the erasing of what he did that was good in only one generation. How about verse 12? We'll go 12 through 15. On the altar of the Lord that he had built in front of the portico, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord according to the daily requirement for offerings commanded by Moses for Sabbaths, new moons, and the three annual feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. In keeping with the ordinances of his father David, he appointed the divisions of priests for their duties, and the Levites to lead the praise and assist the priests according to each day's requirements. He also appointed the gatekeepers by the divisions for, various, for the various gates, because this was what David, the man of God, had ordered. They did not deviate from the king's commands to the priests or to the Levites in any matter, including that of the treasure. Are you ready for some seriously condensed, extremely practical, life-saving truth? Yeah. I want to read that phrase one more time. They did not deviate. Come on. Man, there was a time when it was so easy to point to deviant behavior. Now things that were once considered a psychological disorder are mainstream and on TV everywhere. They did not deviate from the king's commands to the priest or to the Levites in any matter, including that of the treasury. Come on. Moses' revelation is not set aside. It's furthered by David's revelation. And it's carried on by Solomon. I want you to notice these areas. They kept the feast. In other words, they attended all sacred meetings. None of them were optional. Man, what would the church world look like if we did that? They honored the positions that were established by God, whether they liked the person or not, whether he was short or fat or tall or thin. They honored what God established. What would the church world look like if we did that? They did not deviate in three areas specifically. The king's command. That's like God's commands. They did not deviate. They did not deviate from what the priest said. That's very much like your pastors. Those who were put in a position by God. They did not deviate from the Levites. That's the community of believers that you find yourself in presently. Yeah. A priest, everyone. The Levites were led by a high priesthood but they themselves were to be priests. And they didn't deviate in any matter. Do you know what they put last? Including the treasuries. <laughs> That's good. You know how many times I've been asked through the years for somebody to see the church books? It usually happens by one carnal fleshy mutant at least once a month. I used to show the church books. Now I have nothing to do with them, so I don't do it anymore. 
But I expect more of the pastors that are pastoring now. They're bolder, stronger, braver men than I ever was. So the first time they asked me, what do I do with this? I said, you tell them you are happy to show them the church books as soon as they bring their last 12 months bank statements for you to go through. <laughs> what if we didn't deviate in any area? Not any purchase. Not anything. It was all the king's commands, the oh, priest's commands, on. what the community of God knew about and approved of. Amen. Justin's going to hand out some scripture to you to help you understand exactly what we're saying. Nick Rosales, you get John 8, 31 through 32. Paul Rosales, Hebrews 13, 7 through 10. Spencer, you're going to get Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Let's hand out a few more. Brandon, you get 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. JJ, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 2. Rob, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. Carlos, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21. Paul, Pat Rosales, get 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. And Ben, get Revelation 3, 2 through 3. All right. This is simple, right? Right? Yes. Well, who is he speaking to? The Jews that believed in him. The preceding verse says that they began to put their faith in him. Yet there was something very unclear that they couldn't get that they had to follow the commands of the king. They just didn't see him as king. If you do not see Jesus Christ as king in your life, you're going to have a whole lot problem becoming his disciple. He is absolutely king, 100% in authority. He is sitting on the throne of your life. He is in the driver's seat, and you are in the trunk going wherever he wants to go. You must at all times follow the commands of the king, whether you like it or not. Now let's get something straight. Everybody in the room says, Oh yeah, he's my king. Everybody in the room says, Oh yeah, I obey. The phrase that you need to get hold of is without deviation. We're not asking you if you sometimes do what he says. We're asking you if you follow him without deviation. That's everything. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 13, 7 through 10. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Oh, push pause for me, Paul. He didn't say Jesus Christ. He spoke about a representation of Jesus Christ in our life. Oh, man. I'm going to obey the voice of God. I'm going to respond when I hear him. He's going to show up in the clouds and tell me where to go to lunch today. But my pastor, who's flesh and blood and has some problems of his own that I'm constantly thinking about. That, that, that's a little different story. Keep reading, Paul. See how this unfolds. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You mean to tell me that the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ is associated with your relationship to your leaders? Absolutely. Wow. Keep going. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. 
Man, do you think he was talking about paganism in Rome, or is he talking about corruptions of the gospel that have always plagued God's people? Corruptions. Keep going. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Our life is being strengthened by grace, which teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The reality is we must follow our pastors and leaders as Christ with no deviation. Matthew 18. With no what? Deviation. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Why? Why would he say something so harsh? This is sweet little golden... Diaper baby Jesus. Why would he do this? How can he get away with carrying that lamb around his neck and say something like this? Because they first had to deviate from the king's command. Then they had to deviate from the lifestyle of their leaders. And then when their brothers confronted them about it, they deviated from the practice of the community of God. Friends, we are a self-governing body. What you allow here, people will assume God allows. True. What you allow in your own life, you are telling the rest of the world God is okay with. What you are chummy with, what you are comfortable with, even if it's Sodom and Gomorrah, it will cause the rest of the world to believe that God is. That's why we're in the state that we're in. Somebody say without deviation. Without deviation. We must follow the way of life established by the community of believers without deviation. Say, well, other churches do it different ways. Yes, but you came here and said God sent you. How is it that God sent you and you're blessed in every way by it until you want to deviate? And then suddenly what was a blessing is no longer a blessing. We did not change. There are some truths here. Keep the feast. In other words, attend the sacred meetings. Honor the positions that God honors even if you don't like the man. Do not deviate from the king's commands. They're just like God's commands. Do not deviate from the priest's commands. Your pastors, they're accountable to God for what they say. They're given a stricter judgment than you are. Do not deviate from what the Levites say and do. That's the community of believers. Don't do it. If you'll turn your back on those three things, you have to turn your back on God beforehand, no matter what words come out of your mouth. I don't spend a great deal of time grieving about those that do this because they were gone a long time before they left. I do grieve over the loss of a soldier, though. We want you to succeed. 
the fear of God, turning from wicked ways, having a no-deviation attitude that crucifies you daily instead of everyone around you? Amen. That's how you make it. Let's just assume something. You're wrong. Start right there. That's called being humble. Wait until God himself has made clear through the Spirit and the Word and two or more witnesses before you consider anything other than you are wrong and need to humble yourself. God brought you to the family of believers to save your life. If you find a new family of believers every time you want to deviate, you will find yourself in a deviant congregation of the Rephaim. That is exactly what Proverbs says. These facts are so prevalent in the Word that Paul goes so far as to say some very special things about it. But my brothers are going to hand those scriptures out. So who's got 2 Thessalonians 3.6? I got it. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. The teaching you have received from us. Plural. There is a lie that has been going on for years and years that says something like, well, I'm in Jesus Christ. I don't follow any man. I don't listen to any man. I listen to Jesus. In fact, I don't need to be taught. The Spirit teaches me all things. That is a complete lie from the pit of hell to get you to be disobedient and deviate. You're going to see here so many times where the Word explicitly says... This, keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. Oh, but he believes, Justin, he believes. Well, let's just be clear. They end up teaching on YouTube our teachings that they didn't hear from God anyway. They end up taking our books that they didn't write and they didn't hear from God and teaching them anyway. What they mean is I'm accountable to no one but God, but I'll take anything from you that makes me look better. Hey, who has 1 Corinthians 11? I do. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. Saints, it's a simple enough scripture. But just as I passed them on to you. You mean that he expected it to be done without deviation? That he expected him to follow his example without deviation? That he taught him something that had no room for deviation? Paul is directly telling him, follow me, a man, as I follow Christ, and the teachings I gave you, do not deviate from them. Enforce them. Walk out in them. And when you're with other Levites, other believers, I expect you to hold to them. Who is 2 Thessalonians 2? 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel. Through whose gospel? Our gospel. That you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whose Lord? Our Lord. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you. Who passed them on? We Whether by word of mouth or by letter. I think you are starting to get the point. If you're going to come to a community of believers and say, God has led me here, you can't say that 
the first time or second time or third time that you're corrected, now God is causing me to deviate from this. The cause for moving on from a congregation is when they have deviated from what they were teaching before you got there. You can say a lot of things about this ministry. That we've deviated is not one of them. We have a few thousand messages on record, and I've been teaching the same thing for 20 years. People love it until they feel like they're failing in it. And then they hate the standard itself rather than hating their own life so that they could be saved. Got 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Okay, so not writing it to shame, but to do what? Admonish. But to warn. He's warning his children here about something. Look what he's about to say. For though you have countless guides or teachers in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Mm. For I became your so father true. in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Can you hear Paul? Looking at his children through the gospel and saying, look, yes, there are many guardians, but you have few fathers. You ought to listen to them. They're the ones that are concerned for you. They're the ones that long for your growth. This is what he says in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I send you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I was, I were not coming to you. Okay, so pause right there. He said, I warn you, I urge you to imitate me. I urge you to imitate me because I am your father through the gospel. Mm. You know, we all like to say God is our father and I don't need another father, right? Except how easy is it when you lack the fear of God to do things and pretend like God didn't see it. But it's much harder, it's much harder to do things and your fathers in the room notice it and you get away with it. That's why God gives you fathers. If you were born, born, and then put in somebody's house and they raised you, would you consider them your father? Yes. Yes. And yet what you hear is, I was born again before I came to your church. Timothy learned the scriptures from Eunice and Lois. He knew them from what the Bible calls infancy. But Paul says he is his son. Why do you think that is? Because he raised him into a more excellent way in the faith. It says, for this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son. Here you see a priest that he wants them to not deviate from. And now he's sending a fellow Levite that he wants them to not deviate from. Verse 18 says, some of you become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. Man, thank God we have fathers who come to us so that we don't become arrogant. Verse 19 says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? What do you wish? Spirit of gentleness. Amen. It's a word that is worth meditating on. And now I'm staring at the notes. I know that was off the cuff. If you got born again and you were still soiling your spiritual diaper, 
let's not pretend that your 10 years of soiled experience means that you have another father. When you began to walk, to learn to run, to become a man, that is where you found your fatherhood. Hey, who has 1 Timothy 1? 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction. In keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight. Paul's there for me. You mean that his spiritual father had an idea of what he was called to do? Perhaps he even had some insight into his life, knew about prophecies? Keep going. Holding on to the faith and good conscience. Uh, Some have rejected these and, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Rejected what? Obviously faith and a good conscience. And also what Paul knew they were called to do. The prophecies and the things that were spoken about their life. Listen, saints, we're all family in this room. There are some of you that have extraordinary prophecies about your life that I believe. That I'm willing to fight for. And if you shipwreck your faith because you fail to follow the discipleship you have, your part in that country's salvation will go right to hell. There is no such thing as getting a revelation and magically appearing there. With faith and a good conscience, you're going to have to fight the good fight. Amen. Keep going, brother. Among them are Hermanus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Listen, I doubt very seriously that Hymenaeus and Alexander presented it this way. If you went and talked to them, they didn't say, oh, I shipwrecked my faith. But the Lord knows, and I'm sure it became evident because of the work product of their life, i.e. the fruit on the tree a few years down the road. At least that is what we can see in the lives of those that we know that did this. Hey, who has Revelation 3? Revelation 3, verse 2 through 3. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and it's about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. All right, I want you to take a deep breath. What your life look like before you met the pastors and elders of this church? Well, you're my teachers, but no, you're not my fathers. Then how did I get stuck feeding you all of these years? Remember, therefore, what you've received. If you hear it, if you obey it, if you repent, then you will be a victor because that's what this house produces. If you deviate then you will be a deviant. It's really that simple. It's always been that simple. If you don't believe me, ask David Hull. I just looked up and met his eyes. He's been here longer than any of you. Ask him how many he's seen get saved, spirit-filled, prophecies come about, miracles happen in their lives, and today their life is in a dumpster while they're trying to convince everybody it's divine. Verse 16. All Solomon's work was carried out. They, the foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid until its completion. So the temple of the Lord was finished. Woo! Finished. We're going to read you a few verses in rapid succession because this was supposed to take about 15 minutes. <laughs> John 4:34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and 
to finish his work. Come on. Finish it! Man, John 5, 36 says, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. John 17, 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Man, that that would be said of everyone in this room. John 19, 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Look, the highest aim and only witness that you actually have is if you finish what has begun in you. You know, yesterday we were sitting around and just talking about our testimonies and what happened the night we got born again and the time we first heard about the Lord. But you know, none of that will matter if we do not finish the race. Amen. None of that will be for anything if we don't finish what has been started in us. Thankfully, we have an author and perfecter of our faith who is working inside of us. Thank God we have him working in us so we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we want to finish. We don't want to be like those who go back to the vomit. We don't want to be like those that Peter spoke of and said it would would have been better if they had not been saved. We are going to be the ones that finish the work, right? Yes! Hey, what's verse 17? And read on down to 18. Then Solomon went to Gideon Gibber, and he laughed on the coast of Edom. And Aram sent him ships commanded by his own officers. Hey, pause real quick. Hiram, is he a Jew? No. No. Okay, keep reading. Men who knew the sea. These, with Solomon's men, sailed to Ophir and brought back 450 talents of gold, which they delivered to King Solomon. All right, so I know you automatically did the math in your head and you were working through metric tons and you know how much that is. Just in case that wasn't the case and you're like me, that's 17 tons or about 34,000 pounds of gold. That's a lot of F-350 loads. And apparently only one voyage to Ofri, one trip. That's a lot of boats. You know that there is no map that this place appears on? It's El Dorado. Well, if you can go on one trip and get 34,000 pounds of gold, you keep that to yourself. Listen, we're pointing this out for two reasons. First, we're going to contrast this amount to a personal error in Solomon's life. It's going to relate to his salary, but we're going to get to that later. For now, we want to show you something that this is foreshadowing about the millennium to come. Isaiah 60, 10 through 14. Foreigners will rebuild your walls, and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night, so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. You remember Hiram is a Gentile? For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you. Anybody want to guess where Hiram is reigning from? The pine, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn the place of my sanctuary. And I will glorify the place of my feet. The sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet. 
and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. Saints, this is letting us know what the future holds. We are not standing in this yet, but we will see these things fulfilled, and Chronicles let you know what it's going to look like. Hey, y'all want to get into chapter 9? Yeah. <laughs> when the queen of Sheba heard Solomon's fame, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. Arriving with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for him to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw the wisdom of Solomon, as well as the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, the cupbearers in their robes, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. What we want to focus in on is the wisdom and wealth that Solomon had. Here is a queen coming a very long way. 1,200 miles. 1,200 miles. That's almost the distance from here to Virginia. She came all that way on caravans. No trains. And she's seeing the wisdom and wealth that Solomon had. Now I'm going to ask a question, and I don't want you to answer, but I want you to think of this in your mind. Was Solomon's wealth in this case a good thing or a bad thing? That is the question we're going to answer. Because, of course, Solomon was the wealthiest of all. I mean, it was said about him, I will make your wealth increase so much that there will be none who was before you like this and none after you. Solomon had incredible wealth. Now we have to see how did he get it and why was it given to him? Good question. I know some of you might remember this, but we want to read it to you in 1 Kings 3, 7-14. It says, Now, O Lord my God, You have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. How did did Solomon start? A little child. Humility. He started in humility, asking the Lord to give him something because he had to lead the people. Verse 8. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen. A great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Man, that's a great place to be in. To be asking the Lord, Lord, I need to see your face because I have to lead other people. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked, for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice. I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among God's king, among kings. Now, were these blessings from God? Yes, Now, I need a full answer on that. Were these blessings of God? Yes. Yes. Does God give blessings and then the blessings are wrong? No. Does God give wrong blessings? No. What God gives you is good. But these blessings were given to Solomon to lead God's people. They were given by God and they did not emanate from Solomon. 
Solomon started at a very young age. This was not so much a Donald Trump scenario where he inherited a million dollars and turned it into a billion. <laughs> God gave him these things. He cried out for wisdom, and this is what God gave him. Now, this is the Chronicles account, so it does not go into the errors with women, the errors with money, and the errors with weaponry that led <laughs> Solomon astray. This is Ezra's perspective. But we are mentioning it here because of the tendency of believers to be ensnared by the very blessings that God gives them. Does anyone know what it's like to be forging a path in discipleship? To be going straight into everything that God has for you because he's promised you something. Yes. Does anybody know what that's like? Does anyone know what it's like to have the appetite drive the workmen along? And you know that God's promised you something, and you are striving after everything that comes in your path because you know it's on the other side. Man, I know what that's like. I know I've got a promise on my life, a calling that God has for me, and I want to get there, right? Well, let's read a few verses and see what happens when you get there. Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Saints, nobody admits to forgetting the Lord. They just say he spoke something else to them and deviate from the very teachings that caused them to be blessed in the first place. I want to tell you a parable. And parables are never just cleverly invented stories. They're always based on a reality. And it's a way to share it with you To warn your soul. This one's the parable of an accountant. Who got baptized. Who got spirit filled. Who moved from an apartment to a big house. Who was given a vision to adopt a child. Resisted by his family in every way. But supported by his church. In every way. He even became blessed within the church to the point that he was a teacher at that church after obtaining everything that his heart desired, including the adopted child. He forgot how he obtained all of those blessings and today is living among the compromised and he is aiding the very enemies of God. He was ensnared by the very blessings that God gave him. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 through 20. This is after they settled in the land. This is after they've forgotten the Lord. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your forefathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, 
I testify against you that you will be surely destroyed. Mm. Nobody admits to forgetting the Lord. They just say he spoke something else to them, and they deviate from the very teachings that caused them to be blessed in the first place. I want to tell you a parable about a CEO who recovered from a tragic divorce and the suicide of a son. The divorce and the suicide were because the CEO was compromised. But he got baptized. He got spirit-filled. He moved, in his own words, from the basement of life to the boardroom. He was given every one of his own heart's desires, including lavish wealth. He even became an elder in a church. And after obtaining everything that his heart desired, including a business expressly for the funding of God's work, he forgot how he obtained all of those blessings. And today is out of fellowship, wasting away in sickness, and in extraordinary mortal danger of finishing the race in disgrace, he was ensnared by the very blessings of God. Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then, that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Nobody admits to forgetting the Lord. They just say he spoke something else, something different. And they deviate from the very teachings that caused them to be blessed in the first place. I want to tell you a parable of a bachelor who was once a cross-dressing homosexual. He got baptized. His whole life changed. He got spirit-filled. It was prophesied to him that he would have a wife and children. He protested and said it wasn't possible. But the community of faith rallied around him and said it is possible. He progressed in every way, including receiving the wife and the children. The man even became a teacher within that church. After obtaining everything that his heart desired, including the wife and the children, he forgot how he obtained all of those blessings. And today he is an internet teacher that is a mere shadow of the man that he is called to be. He's even estranged from some of the family that God gave him precisely because they are more righteous than he is. He was ensnared by the blessings God gave him. Galatians 3.1.4 says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. 
Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? After obtaining all the blessings that result from obedience, we cannot believe that we are supposed to do anything other than continue in the obedience that produced the blessing. What happens when you forget the Lord? Is you begin to let things creep into your life. You begin to let the lack of fear of God take you too far. You begin to creep into doubt. You begin to creep into so many other things. And then before you know it, you are not obedient to the teachings that you once received. What you are doing by your own human effort is you're trying to work out some other kind of salvation to show the world that you didn't forget. Consider the irony of receiving things you never could have imagined through obedience to the teachings of a church and then considering that very church a threat to what you have received. And I've seen three parables like that in a single year. Why are we teaching you what we're teaching you? Because you need the majesty of God's name to draw you, to keep you, and you have to stay focused on that. If you get focused on any other thing, you will deviate. And in your deviant behavior, you will blame those that helped you. Do you know how I know that? I've watched it for 28 years. Nobody is exempt in this way. The devil deceives most. The kindness of God in their lives becomes the very reason that they no longer have to depend on Him. Has God advanced your life since you've been here? Yes. Think about what you were before you walked through the doors. Because the Queen of Sheba was only drawn to Solomon because of what God did in him. It had nothing to do with Solomon. The deception is that Solomon is great. No, Solomon had a very great God that was good to him. And that is what ultimately hurt Solomon. If he departs from the goodness that God put in his life, then there is nothing remarkable about him. He's just one more monarch that reigned and fell. We have a few scriptures that we'd like to hand out to you. Can you tell that we've hit a nerve? Yes. Chris, I'd like you to read Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 for me. Andrew Hayes, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Timo, Revelation 2, 5 through 6. Spence, will you get John 15, 7 through 8? Brenton. Isaiah 43, 6-7. Cody, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, just verse 31. Paul Rosales, 2 Corinthians 4, 15. Nick Rosales, Matthew 12, 42. And we'll pick back up in the text afterwards. When you have Ephesians, go ahead and read. Ephesians 5, 15-17. Be very careful in how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
Do not be foolish. Be very careful then how you live. Do not deviate. Do not deviate. I asked Chris to read this specific scripture because I've been walking a little closer with him lately. He is very careful about how he lives. The man does not deviate. I'm watching cops drag people off, watching attacks from without and within, everywhere that he goes. But the man has learned to hold to the standard so God blesses his life. He's not devoid of hardship, but he's upheld by a mighty God. I want to tell you today, among my friends and family, that God has blessed you richly. And I can see that some of you have not been very careful how you live. In fact, you've been enjoying the way you live. How foolish the days are evil. It's time that we recognize what the purpose of God's blessing on our household is. What you see is temporary laxity. What you see is I'm temporarily focusing in another area. The devil sees as an opportunity to devour you because you've deviated from the standard. You have an opportunity, though, to be a witness to the majesty of the name of God instead of becoming a cautionary parable. But mark my words. The potential for you to become a parable is here and very real in the room. The days are evil. Be alert. It's completely up to us how we want to relate to these stories. Hey, who has Hebrews 3? When you ask people, do you have a sinful, unbelieving heart? No. My wicked father would say, yeah, and he was proud of it. Christians say, no, of course not. This was written to believers. The whole point is that you acknowledge what is in you so that you can turn from it. It's very hard to defeat a thing that you don't even believe is there. We have to acknowledge when compared with the goodness of God's name, your heart is exceedingly wicked. And the more you yield to that, the more deceived you are. But if you will circumcise it at the bronze altar, then you can wash at the laver. You can invite the leading of God's spirit at the menorah. You can eat of his word And then, and only then, do you find yourself at a gold altar of intercession. We don't want you to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The leaders in this church ourselves daily walk through this process. Before we got into these chapters, we looked at each other and said, I'm not sure what we're going to teach. We can make it all about the millennial reign. We can make it all about the historical account. said, brothers, let's get on our face together. We first extolled God's name. And after lifting up his name and his attributes, each of us was overcome with our own wickedness. And after we began to circumcise away the hardness that sin causes, we could then see the image of God in the labor. We invited His Spirit to lead us, His Word to direct us, and as we were at the golden altar of incense, 
He began to speak to us about what this church needs. It's so much better to hear from God than have the approval of man. Let's read Revelation 2, verse 5. In all of the churches, in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ had the same message. It's repent. Not one of them did He exclude that. Repentance. says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Why? Because in some area of our life, we all have an area where we've fallen. That we need to remember. The context of this verse He says, I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. The love you had at first when you began the process of discipleship. The love you had at first for the pastors because they took you in. Because you didn't have pastors before that. The love you had at first for the teaching of the church, for the teaching of the fathers, for the discipleship helps in the Acts class. You've forsaken it. He said, repent and do the things you did at first. What things did you do first? You weren't concerned with the quarrels inside the body. You were were concerned with the teaching that you had to get so that you can live in it. That's what you did at first. If you do not repent, you'll have your lampstand removing. But you know the saddest thing about the removal of the lampstand? The saddest thing about it is that like Samson... People rarely even realize it has happened. No one walks around saying, hey, my lampstand has been removed. Hey, how's your walk, brother? My lampstand is in danger of being removed. They don't recognize it's happening. And instead, they blame everyone else around. The things that God adds to your life are for his glory and not your own. The quickest way for you to fall down this path is to treat the blessings of God as the full answer and you need nothing else. That will cause you to walk away so fast and then blame those who gave you those blessings. Come on. Who taught you how to get those blessings. It's got John 15, verse 7 through 8. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish that will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Saints, even the fruit of righteousness in your life that is deeds doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your Father. It is for His glory. I want to point out something that is unique here. Verse 7 says, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. See, we have the holistic context of the Word of God. James tells us that when we ask and do not receive, it's because we're asking with wrong motives. Saints, when your life is about Him and it is not about you, you're wholeheartedly dedicated. You can have confidence. He will provide every good thing. He will provide what you need. What we are warning you about tonight and what is happening again and again is once He's provided every good thing that you forget Him. That He brought you across state lines. That He redeemed your heart from the wicked state that you were in. From the bewildered orphan that you once were. That you do not forget what He has done for you. The very deeds that you have accomplished are for His glory. And He appointed you to turn it back to Him. Who has Isaiah 43? Isaiah 43, 6. I will say to the north, give them up. 
and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, and whom I have created for my glory, who I have formed, even whom I have made. One of the things that I love about the passages tonight, we'll get into it more, a little more as we go, but Ethiopia is directly south of Israel. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. When the queen of Sheba saw something, when she saw the character of God being displayed in the kingdom, she couldn't be held back. We don't know how long she stayed. But we know that when she returned to her nation, it had a Judaistic influence from that point forward. And they were among the first to receive the Jewish Messiah because of it. They gave us the book of Enoch in its most preserved copy. Some people actually think the ark of God is there. Because she couldn't be held back. And she never forgot what she experienced. You were made to bring glory to the king. And that's the only reason that he blesses anyone. When I look around the room, I will not call out what you once were. (laughs) But we know each other. And when I think about the difference between when we first met and now, all I can do is glorify God's name for what he did and none of us could do. But do not make a mistake. The fact that it was God's power that did it didn't mean that he didn't do it in a specific place with specific people. And if you could have gotten it somewhere else, then we wouldn't have found you in the condition we did. Don't let anything hold you back. You were made for God's glory. Whatever he adds to your life is for his glory. None of the men in this church will ever steal that glory. That's not who we are. We're going to go on to learn about Solomon's salary. The Sutherlands and the Stevens and the Piro don't know anything about that. Because the blessings in your life are not to enrich ours. They're to lay at the feet of a king, but I am jealous to protect them. Who had 1 Corinthians 10? Verse 31. So so whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Come on, where did you first start seeing the the glory of God being magnified in your life? Where did you start seeing God's glory being magnified in what He was doing inside of you? It is here. God brought you here to bring Him more glory. He's teaching you that whatever you do, do it for God's glory. The big blessings, the big promises that God has for you, the things that He wants to give you, it's for His glory. The smaller things in your life, the things you do on a daily basis, it's all for God's glory. Whether you eat or drink, it's not to nurse your offense. It's not to avoid difficulty. It's not because you think you can't live up to a standard. It's all for God's glory. Glory. Amen. If you live for his glory, he will bless you with the grace to keep his ways so you can glorify him more. 
2 Corinthians 4.15 says, All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow, overflow to the glory of God. Yes. Someone say, don't deviate. Don't deviate. The grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness is reaching more and more people, causing thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Listen, as we return to the subject of Queen Sheba in our next passage, remember, the only reason for blessing is to display the greatness of God's name to more and more people. That can only be accomplished through the grace of God, which does not deviate. This is what Jesus says about the Queen of Sheba. Who has Matthew 12, 42? The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the end of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Those who were drawn to the miraculous workings in the accountant's life, those that were drawn to the amazing display of blessings in the CEO's life, those who were drawn to the wisdom and the teaching in that bachelor's life will rise in judgment against them because those men were ensnared by the very blessings that were meant to display God's glorious name. It's our greatest desire that nobody else becomes a parable. If you've spent time with the pastors, the elders, For all of the stories that you like to tell about harsh correction, all the times you were smacked down, I suspect you were hugged and picked up a lot more than you were smacked down. Because we sure are there on moving day and hospital day and every other bad day of your life. You were made to display God's glory. Amen. Our message to you is that we're reading about the wisest man, the man that God invested the most in. And in the same chapter that is the triumph of his achievement, you see the seeds of his destruction. I wasn't worried about most of you when you had no place to sleep. I wasn't worried about most of you when you didn't have jobs or spouses. But you're far more vulnerable when you're experiencing victories than when you were coming out of defeat because you forget your God and the people who helped you find the right way to walk. Let's pick up in verse 5. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe what they said until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, Not even half of the greatness of your wisdom was told me. You have far exceeded the report I heard. Somebody say not even half. Not Not even half. Man, most of the time you're oversold on a subject. (laughs) This is the Chronicles account. Many of Solomon's difficulties are omitted to intentionally foreshadow the Messianic age. The Queen of Sheba has traveled 1,200 miles to see a man endowed with God's wisdom. And what she saw exceeded her expectations. It more than doubled it. The text indicates in verse 4 in Hebrew that she was spiritless. That's an odd phrase. Yeah, Carlos is like, my scripture says that. Of course, there, ruah doesn't mean spirit. It means breath. 
She was caught breathless, but she saw knock the wind out of her. The same way that people get married under those circumstances. (laughs) Strike me breathless, baby, because of wickedness and the deceitfulness of sin. They don't even love that person 10 years later. And it's the same person. You're just not. I want to remain breathless for what God is doing. Amen. Amen. I can't help but catch Adam's eye because he just moved here. Adam, the best thing you could do is write down how you feel this week at this church. Because there'll come a day where as good a guy as you are, we have hurt your feelings enough and trampled on your sinful nature enough, you'll be tempted to forget it. Look at me, church. That's our job. Amen. And the Lord wouldn't be proud of us if we didn't do it. And we don't do it for your destruction. We do it for your protection from destruction. God have mercy on us when there is no one who will stand toe to toe and call us to account. We would be left to ourselves. The hardest moment in my entire life was when I was not surrounded by all of this and had to begin it. We've done everything that we know how to do to make sure that never happens to a generation of believers again. Hallelujah. Ever. Thank you. Because when you're left alone, you have almost no chance of survival. And it's what the devil seeks to isolate you from. And if he can isolate you from the very body that helped you find life, don't tell me he can't isolate you from anything. The Ethiopian eunuch is probably the result of this woman's testimony. When you're reading an Acts and the treasure to the uh, Queen Candace has come all the way to Jerusalem, well, how did he know about it? The Ethiopian heard her testimony. And Ethiopia has had a strong heritage of Judaism and later Christianity from her day forward. I know that the ark didn't leave with her because the Bible mentions it 200 years later. Maybe they built a replica. I don't know. Or maybe that scrawny little Ethiopian emaciated guard is actually guarding nothing. But I know that their copies of the Tanakh are among the purest in the world. I know that they had the only copy of the book of Enoch that bears scholarly scrutiny. I know that the largest airlift in history that was not wartime was to get Ethiopians that wanted to make Aliyah to Israel. That was a thousand years after this encounter. If your life becomes all about the glory of God, a thousand years from now you'll still be making an impact. Amen. You let it slip into the glory of your name, your achievements. You begin to deviate from that which has made you. And in a thousand seconds, you'll be forgotten. I think that the events we're reading about are hinted at in Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. 
This happens at the time that Solomon's temple was established in Chronicles. But Isaiah is speaking about another temple. As cheap among the mountains, it will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it, just like the queen of Ethiopia is. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Now, what was Solomon known for? Settling many disputes. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come on. Can this not more perfectly describe the time of Solomon? Look at what Micah chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. As we Go ahead. These are beautiful pictures, aren't they? Solomon more foreshadowed these events than anything else, but these prophecies are happening 250 years after. You can see many of these things could have thought to have been fulfilled in Solomon's life. But those fulfillments are imperfect. They're fulfillments in the sense that there's a pattern that's begun that the prophets could look into and see there would be a bigger fulfillment of. But we're an hour and 58 minutes in, and in all likelihood... We can probably only hold your attention span and our feebleness for another 15 minutes or so. So I want to pick up in verse 7 and get to some very practical meat in this story as we try to do justice to its historical text. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on his throne as the king as king to rule for the Lord, your God. Because of the love of your God for Israel and his desire to uphold them forever, he has made you king over them to maintain justice and righteousness. Y'all stay staring at that screen so you can pick out these words. The queen of Sheba, she noticed the overflowing joy of Solomon's men. She didn't notice they were miserable or that they thought it was a burden or that they just didn't want to be there anymore. She was remarking breathlessly about the joy that they exhibited. We're a serious bunch, but we're a joyful bunch. I'm contending for your souls because I want the joy of seeing you victorious. One of the clear signs that someone is forgetting the Lord 
It's when the very community that used to cause them to exhibit joy is now in their minds burdened in pain. I just don't know what's happened. I don't enjoy it anymore. Those pastors must have uh, deviated. I would suggest that you humble yourself and look in the mirror of the Word. If the church is teaching what the church was teaching when you got here, then the problem is with you, not the church. Amen. If I haven't said that enough, then we can have a personal meeting about it. Galatians describes exactly these events. Exactly. And it's why we're warning you. It's been a problem since the inception of Christianity. You wash the pig, and then it returns to its vomit. It wallows in the mud. You clean up the dog, he looks more like a puppy, and then he goes back to his vomit. Mm -hmm. But they never say that's what they're doing. They always say, the Lord's just leading me. Mm -hmm. It's the hardness of a heart from sin's deceitfulness. Look at how Paul picked up on it within 10 years of planting a church. The first 10 years, and Paul planted it. So it's not a Wade Sutherland or Matthew Pirro or Eric Stevens problem. Paul! We're talking about the Apostle Paul! Galatians 4, 15-16 says, What has happened to all your joy? Paul's indicator of a problem is that the joy they once had is gone. Joy is an indicator of how well you are doing with the Lord. So much so that David in Psalm 51 says, Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation. Come on. Your joy is an indicator of how well you're doing with the Lord. He says, what's happened to all your joy? I could testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Of course, that's on the day that they first came to Paul's church. (laughs) Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Yes! That's the truth. Yes! That's how they view him. That's why he's writing what he's writing. Because they've been deceived into thinking that the message that saved them is now the problem. You have to ask yourself, do you have the same joy that you had when you first found this place? Yes. Man, when I came here, I was so relieved that I wasn't alone anymore. I was so relieved that there were men of God that wanted to invest in my calling more than I had in the last however many years I've been saved myself. I was so glad that I was in a place where there was accountability because I wanted to get right. But there comes a time where you're holding on to something, an offense, you're holding on to some secret sin in your life that you don't want exposed, and then a pastor comes along and tries to help you get free from the thorns that are stuck all over you. And your joy turns into an offense because you want to hold on. Our messages don't hold on. Amen. It's so much easier to walk in that joy you had at first. Amen. It feels good. Amen. It feels great to be joyful. It's liberating yes. in what he's doing in our lives. Amen. Galatians 5, 7 says this. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? 
You did. Listen, it's as simple as that. Nobody is keeping you from obeying the truth. All I want to say is how goes it with your soul? I'm looking at a lot of eyes right now, and I can see a fire in some of yours. Yes. You love the Lord. You love your brothers on your left and right, and you're ready to die for them right now. Yeah. And also see in others, there is none of that fire that I once knew. How goes it with your soul? It's because you've deviated. But the truth is you can turn and repent now from oh, your wicked ways. You have a chance to fix where this is going. Do you Brother, want fire in your soul again? Then do what Elijah did. Quench it with water again and again and again. Let your tears run over your actual condition. And then God will answer you with fire from heaven. Hey, you guys want to hear a bright note? Read verse 8 again for us. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on his throne as a king to rule for the Lord your God. My God, the Messianic king is ruling because the Lord loves his people. That's why his kingship in your life in one day, nationally in Israel, is because he loves you. It's not because he wants to kill you. The Queen of Sheba recognized this because the Lord loves his people. He gave them a king like you who could carry out his decrees. Man, we need to learn to recognize the kindness of God in our life. It's because he loves us. Linton, read 9 through 12. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices, and precious stones. There had never been such spices as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. That's more spices than Ohad puts in his food. <laughs> <laughs> then, Barab, then the men of Barab and the men of Solomon brought the gold from Ophir. They also brought album wood and precious stones. The king used the album wood to make steps for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. Nothing like them had ever been seen in Judah. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for it. He gave her more than she had brought him. Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. (laughs) Now, if you read some of the legends surrounding this, there'll be new meaning to the idea of he gave her more than uh, she gave him. (laughs) The monarchies in Ethiopia actually think that they descend from Solomon because they believe that she carried his child back. All the way up to 1955, when the last man in that dynasty put in their constitution that they descend from Solomon. Now, while I think that is doubtful, I think she probably wanted that. But I don't think he delivered that. (laughs) I will say this. Getting back more than you put in, that's always the result of a man exchanging something with God. It's true. Always. The trick is for that not to ensnare you. What the Bible extols is the widow who brings her might. People who give out of their poverty. What the Bible often produces because of man's sickness, sinfulness, is... That as God gives you back more, you give him less percentage-wise. Less of your passion, less of your time, less of your emotion. And why? Because of all you've given me, Lord. I mean, I got a wife now, and I didn't used to have a wife. 
I got children now, and I didn't used to have children. I got a job now, Lord, a whole J-O-B, and I didn't used to have one. Now I just don't have time for you. And I resent the people that point it out. The Lord will always give you back more than you put in. But it should always be your goal to give him all you are and all you have. Amen. That is done first, foremost, primarily through the relationships in this room. I'm going to caution all of you, and I don't really care what you think about it. If you are developing relationships with ministries outside of this church that this church would not be able to fellowship with, shame on you. Amen. If you think that you have ministry in your life that is not in conjunction with the people in this room, shame on you. What happens in every case that somebody goes to be a weekend warrior on the street or they're going to minister to another church because those people look like them is it corrupts you. I'm telling you to wake up. Amen. God brought you here so that you could become victorious. Your efforts towards those outside should be to bring them here to be victorious. And that doesn't happen by you going to the low levels that they live at. Some of you have more empathy and compassion for people than God does. Learn to stand on the high ground and invite people up to it. And stop lowering the majesty of God's name by trying to feed his manna to swine. If somebody's visiting prostitutes, stay the hell away from them. If somebody does not honor the Lord like you do, rebuke them sharply. Well, pastor, I just don't know about that. Read your Bible. Look to the men that are teaching you the Bible. You don't see me hang out with people like that, and they don't want to hang out with me. There's a reason for that. There's also a reason that you avoid me when you're not doing well. This is reminiscent of the parable of the talents. God expects an increase. He wants an increase. And only he can give you the increase. Plant water and only he can make it grow. When it grows, you should not think that it came by your might, your power, your wisdom. Think of what you were when you were called. What were you producing? There's only a couple people in this room that knew me the week that I got born again. They can tell you that what's been produced in me has been produced through the grace of God. Nobody is more painfully aware at my own ineptness than me. And yet somehow or another, here we stand. Come on. I won't apologize for it. Not now, not ever. Because what's been done has been done through the grace of God and I plan for it to continue for a thousand generations. Don't be deceived into thinking that the blessing that you have in your life absolves you of the continued cost of the call. It's a good word. You didn't have a house when you got here and you got a house. Don't let that house keep you from doing the things that brought you here. You didn't have a wife. You didn't have children. You didn't have a means to make an income. Don't let those things keep you from becoming what you came here for. 
or else the blessings of God will have ensnared you exactly as they've ensnared Solomon. And when you read about Solomon's life, this is the pinnacle of it. And you can see seeds of destruction in it. Well, I'm a pastor. When I look at your lives, I can see some of you are peaking. But I also see the seeds of destruction. And I'm fighting for you. You might not like the way that I do it. You might not like the forum. When you start a church, we can do it the way you want to do it. We are going to bat for your soul. And I'm going to tell you that there's never been a time period in LCM's history where we've been blessed with deeper, fuller, better revelation. Or that you've had kinder, more diligent, consistent pastoring than you have right now. If you can't succeed in this golden age, then the problem is with you. Because we were succeeding when we were meeting with drug addicts and whores inside of a garage. There is more at your fingertips right now than there is in any church in the one association by far. And this place is the envy of the other pastors. There's a secret here that is so underrated, but we say it all the time. Every student who is well-trained will become like their teacher. Every strong disciple you see, every strong man of God, woman of God that is going after the call of God in their life, is because they've learned the secret. We want to live like the men that we see fruit in. We want to be like them. We want to have the same lifestyle. Yes. We want to have a similar position in our... This extends to everything in our lives. We want to have our finances look like theirs. We want to have our callings look like theirs. We want to live like they do. We want to act like they act. This is how we learn how to do this. By the men there before us. And you might say, I don't like one. But that's why God gave you three. (laughs) That's why God gave you three elders. And guess what? They're all in unity with each other. This really is the secret, and the more that you can get out of that, the less you'll have to worry about falling prey to your blessings. That is the secret. Let's pick up in verse 13 and start to read about Kenneth Copeland's salary. (laughs) Get 14 while you're at it. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Jesse Duplantis' salary. The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Not including the gen- I mean the revenues brought in the merchants and traders. Also, the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. Now he received yearly 666 talents. This number should stand out to you because of Revelation 13, 18. And they will take the mark of the beast, which is 666, and they will not be able to trade, buy, or sell without it. Now, some think this might be a microchip or some kind of encoded barcode. Or it could be that it is something handed to you that you want that God does not want you to have and said that you shouldn't have because it might be bad for you. It might be a system of receiving things that you should not have. But whatever you think about these things, it is a bad sign when your annual salary, personal enrichment, is 666 talents. That's 25 tons or 50,000 pounds of gold. And mind you, this was not for the treasuries of the temple. That's more than the trip to Ophir. 
where they had to get ships and bring it back. And listen, what does a king need with this? Let's just be honest. This is not for the treasury of the temple. This is not for the operation of the nation. This is not for widows and orphans. This is the personal salary of the king. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't the king have had no salary? Everything that he needs is provided by his kingdom. Is the king going to go hungry? Is the king going to lack clothing? This is very much like a pastor in his parsonage. Why would a pastor need a giant salary? He's supposed to live in conjunction with the church anyway. I'm very proud of Pastor Wade. Very proud of Pastor Matthew. I don't think that there's been a year since they've been here anyway that they made as much money as you guys do that are working entry-level jobs. (laughs) Because they depend on the church and nothing is their own. Whatever the mark of the beast is, it has something to do with personal enrichment that God does not want you to have. When the blessings of God become a snare, you can cut yourself off from the God who gave you the blessing. Hey, I have a passage out of the Gospels to read to you. It's Luke 12, 15. Then he said to them, watch out. Somebody say watch out with watch me. Out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Be an American. But God said to him, God said, you fool. This very night your life may be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. The parable concludes by comparing... God's provision to the provision that Solomon had for himself. Listen, how rich are you in God in comparison to the blessings he gave you? There ought to be at least an equivalent ratio between your devotion, your wholehearted sacrifice to the Lord, with the things he gave you. 
Truth is, he didn't owe you a damn thing. But he gave it to you because he loved you. Because he wanted to store you. And all of Solomon in his splendor was not equivalent to the Lord's provision. Is the conclusion. Saints, it's time to be rich in the Lord. We're not saying throw away the things that God gave you. For God's sakes, take care of your children. Pastor them well. But let your sacrifice before the Lord increase as he has been good to you. Let it increase in every area of your life. Do not be assuaged. Do not drift away. Wake up. Pay the cost for the call. Linton, verse 15 and 16, please. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 beckons of hammered gold when they each shield. These are the ones that Shishak took in one generation. Keep going. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with 300 beckons of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Now, if we had unlimited time, which you're probably thinking we think we do, (laughs) I would tell you all about the forest of Lebanon and the way that it refers to Solomon's palace because it was constructed from the cedars of Lebanon. But since I don't have time to tell you about that, I'll just tell you this is a hint at the millennial reign. The place that the king of Israel was living was constructed out of materials provided from Gentile lands and Gentiles. Let's do verse 17. The king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold was attached to it. On both sides of the seat were armrests with the lion standing beside each of them. That's just now, cool. there's some numerology here that I want you to get. There were six steps and then one golden footstool. A golden age. Six steps to reach the throne. This is a reminder of the six, and one equals seven, which is the pattern to repair the world. There's six feasts that are steps ascending to the seventh feast, which is an indicator that the world would have a place where God would dwell amongst men. It also is another pattern. Six steps into the tabernacle. There are six stations, six steps. What's the seventh? The throne. The very throne of God. Now read verse 19, and we're going to see more numerology here. Twelve lines stood on the six steps, one at either end of the step, of each step. There are six lions on each side, so there's twelve. What does twelve represent? The twelve tribes of Israel, surrounding the six steps leading to the very throne of God. The nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, there are no lost tribes. All of them are pointing to the very throne of God. And then it says, nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. Come on. This this is the kingdom to come. And the kingdom to come is without parallel. There will be nothing like it. There has been nothing like it before. And this is how we know we're not in it yet. Because we are waiting for a kingdom that has no parallel. Amen. 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 All right, before we hit verse 20, somebody say, that's cool. That's cool. The Bible is not boring. It is filled with the most masculine imagery possible. His throne is covered in lions and it's seven steps. And it's an image of our Savior, the Son of David, that is going to come and he's going to sit on a throne that's even more glorious than that. All King Solomon's goblets were gold and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little 
Look, this is more millennial foreshadowing. Redemption, silver, it's no longer needed. Divinity has come. Everything is divine. We're increasing in a divine nature, even the cups and the forks. The old world has passed away and we're in a new beginning. We're going to sit with Father Abraham and drink out of gold cups together. And it will not be grape juice, my friends. Amen. Keep reading, Brother Linton. The king had a fleet of trading ships manned by their own men. Once every three years, they returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. If we had time, we would tell you that if you go three years out, and you're one year back, and then you go three years out, that we have more six-in-one patterns. But we don't have time to talk about that. King Solomon was all are the kings of the earth. All the kings of the earth sought, sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom of God, wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold and robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon... No. If, uh, if we had unlimited time, if you were in immortal bodies right now, and your butts didn't hurt, and my feet didn't hurt, and I wasn't tired and hoping to get home and talk with my wife. I would tell you that the book of Zechariah has a yearly visit to Jerusalem by every nation in the world. And if they don't make a yearly visit, then they get no rain. Now, I've seen a lot of crazy weather in these days. But it'd be hard to imagine that we're in the millennial reign now since nations that don't visit Jerusalem are still experiencing rainfall. That's Let's pick up in verse 25. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in chariot cities and also with them in Jerusalem. Okay. When you're thinking about where he kept his horses, I've been to Megiddo, I don't know how many times now, maybe 12 it's 20 layers deep. It's one of the places he kept his horses. He's not supposed to have horses that came from Egypt. And he's not supposed to have wives that came from Egypt. While he's accumulating these things, something else is growing in his heart. Much like as you accumulate the blessings of God, if you're not careful, things will grow in your heart. But at the same time, the most deceptive part about this is he's also advancing the kingdom. Let's put a map on the screen. This is verse 26. He ruled over all the kings from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. Solomon expanded the kingdom of Israel. He didn't make it to the royal land grant. We don't have the Euphrates River here in the way that we're supposed to. But the great deception is how could he be wrong because he's advancing Israel more than anybody ever has. He's experiencing more wealth than anybody ever has. But he himself is declining in a way that he never has. Okay? It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. We have to do some heart work as God blesses us for it to stay a blessing. I think we probably are to pick up in 27 and read through 30 because we're probably at the limit. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from all other countries. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, from, the, from beginning to end, are they not written in the records of Nathan the prophet and in the prophecy of Elijah, the Shilonite, 
in the and in the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam son of Nebat, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over Israel all, over all Israel forty years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son succeeded him as king. Here we've come to the very end of Solomon's reign. We're at the very end of the chapter, and it's talking about the next king that will reign in Israel. You guys familiar with the story of Rehoboam? Yes. Things are pretty bleak in those times, and they go from bad to worse. But we want to end on a different note. There's something beautiful about the way this passage ends. And I want to know, did any of you catch it? It talks about everything in Solomon's reign, from beginning to end, the written They're written down by men. They're written down in the records of Nathan the prophet, in the prophecy of Ahijah, and in the visions of Edo the seer. What we want to end on is that in the midst of this downfall, remember the height that they have fallen? They are at the peak of their existence as a nation. They are in the golden era, and they are about to have a very sharp downfall. But you want to know one thing that did not downfall? It was the unbroken chain of righteous prophets who were handing down the torch of discipleship and continuing in that lineage throughout these times. There is a righteous vision that is being maintained. And it's not by the king sitting in the palace. It's not by all the royal advisors or the nobles who are sitting in the palace. It is through the discipleship of these prophets These men who came from the desert, these men that were impoverished, these men that were sawn in two and killed by the sword. There is an unbroken chain of discipleship in the midst of turbulent circumstances, whether in wealth or in poverty. We want to talk to you about that unbroken chain. These are the school of the prophets. 1 Samuel 19, verse 20. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also prophesied. This is back in the days where we have our very first king and his name means death. He was rebellious. He did not fear the Lord enough to obey his commands. And yet we find that there is a prophet leading a group of prophets that despite the conditions in the earliest beginnings of kingship in Israel, there was a school of prophets that was operating as God had intended. I want you to contrast the 40 years of prosperity, or the 40 years prior to David, with what we're seeing now under Solomon's day. It was despotic. Sometimes they were winning. Sometimes they were losing. The entire nation was afraid. And the school of prophets was there operating as they should during those days. Nothing had changed. They had continued their call because it wasn't based upon prosperity. 1 Chronicles 9, 22. Altogether, they chose, altogether they chose to be gatekeepers at the thresholds numbered 212. They were registered by genealogy in their villages. The gatekeepers had been assigned to their positions of trust by David and Samuel the seer. God has always made sure that there was a prophetic voice that didn't live in the palace. They tended to be in places of obscurity Mm -hmm. where the real blessings that could be sought were not popularity, 
They were not pleasures. They were not palaces. It was that they could hear from God. Come on. That man, Samuel, he was not only there when David was on the run. He was there for David when David was coming into power. And David loved him his entire life long for it. But that's not where Samuel stopped and it's not where we're stopping either. Samuel raised up a school of men who were like him. Yes. Who lived like him. Who walked in his way of life. You see them throughout the biblical narrative and history. Look at 1 Chronicles 29, 29. As for the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, they're written in the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer, together with the details of his reign and power and the circumstances that surrounded him and Israel and the kingdoms of all other lands. This is an unbroken line of men who carried the standard. Come on. An unbroken line of men who kept purity in heart. An unbroken line of men who did not have a salary of 666 talents of gold, but they did have the gold pure word of God flowing out of their mouths. This is an unbroken line that held unbroken resolve. You want to know how to stay pure? Focus on the unbroken line that will come out of your life. These men were unbroken in their resolves, and the men that came after them dared not to drop the standard. When you look back and you see the unbroken line of men that have gone before you, when you look at the vision that's been given to Elder Charlie, Come that's on. been passed on to our pastors, Amen. Amen. Continue, it gives you an unbroken resolve that that has to continue. It gives you ease to get rid of all of the desires for the things that kings want in palaces. It gives you the pure desire to just want to carry the standard that they have received. This unbroken line began with them and it has to end with you leaving it to your children and them after them. That unbroken line will not stop with us and it causes us to go further. In this passage, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad are mentioned. Tonight in our chapter, Ahijah and Edo were added to it. In 2 Kings 3, Elisha encounters the company of the prophets, and they know what no one else knows. Today, Elijah, your master, is going to be taken from us. One of the reasons that these men heard with clarity is they deprived themselves of anything else that would get in the way. I'm not asking you to live in a burlap sack. I do not. I'm not asking you to drive a Subaru. I will not. I'm asking you to make sure that the blessings in your life do not ensnare you. I'm asking you to make sure that your highest priority in life is the circumcision of your own heart so that you can turn from your own wicked ways and hear from God and have Him hear you. I am confident that when you do that, None of us will need to commend ourselves to the other. For the Spirit of God will commend us to each other. We were brought together for a reason. Amen. And the world will never be the same because of it if we are faithful to why He brought us together. 
I met Elder Charlie in 1993. And in 1993, he shared a vision with me. God has also spoken many things to me, but they all fit inside of each other. I have not backed up. I have not let up. I have not shut up. But I have included all of my friends that were faithful. And you are my friends. And we are not done with what God has called us together to do. Amen. But the school of the prophets depends on men that are untainted by the pleasures of this world. I'm going to hand this over to Judah, but what I am asking of you is that you start by thinking of what you were when we met and what God has called you to ultimately. And I trust you will find out that you are not already a king because we would be kings with you. There's a ways left to go. And it's time for unbroken chain of men with an unbroken resolve. I know that you're up to the task. Wednesday night, I'm going to share with my friends gold with you. Life-changing. It's altered the way that I pray. But that's only if you're here to hear it. Because if you slink out that door with deception in your heart and you blame us because you've been blinded by the goodness of God in your life. I won't run after any of you. I'll be right here doing exactly what I was doing when you walked through the doors for the first time. That's what the school of the prophets is. They're not moved by the king's circumstances. They're moved by hearing from God and they're there to direct the building of the temple and they're there to correct the king who got the plans when he's off base. God has appointed us in your life for a reason. Amen. Stand to your feet. The unfortunate historical narrative is that a ministry starts, the denominations that we often stare at a shell of now, it didn't begin that way. They started in power. They started in fire. They started in revival. But that tends to only last about 40, 50 years. At most. At best. We don't want a golden Solomonic age that is a 40-year lifespan. You've agreed. You said amen. We fought and said we want to see a thousand generations. I intend to make good on that. The way that we make good on it is right here, right now in our convictions. What is it that we are willing to accept and what we cannot accept? Where we take our stand, but surely at some point we must take our stand. We can't bend, we can't break, and we can't slowly slide into a compromised state. We will find ourselves the husk and shadow of what we were once were that we see all around us. I want to finish this race in fire and know that we showed our sons how to cross the finish line. Not to start it well, but to finish it well. If there are men that want to finish well, I'm asking you to evaluate your home. We've done this for weeks. 
I'm asking you to look to your brothers on your left and right and in a loving, overwhelming kind of way, take the gloves off as necessary because you do not want to see them die. The consequences of not doing it in our homes and with our brothers is death, make no mistake. It'd be a slow spiritual death. It'd be one that comes upon them and trails behind them over time, but it is death. It surely is when Eve and Adam took of that fruit. It's time for us to be alert and ask our God to strengthen us in right action tonight. Will you pray with me? Yes. Pray to a God that is glorious, that is holy, that is able to make us holy.